this theme of Jesus as king. Jesus is the Messiah king, we said. And we put it this way, these three kind of ideas that I walked us through from Matthew 1 to 12. Jesus is the Messiah king that's clearly demonstrated in the book of Matthew. And as the Messiah king, then Jesus is worthy of our affection and allegiance. And we tried to look at some of those components of his worthiness as Messiah king, the one who brings all of God's saving promises to fruition. And then I said, the end result of that, Matthew's calling us then to follow him in light of who he is, right? So we've seen these things from Matthew, and this week I want to focus on the other aspect of our title for this sermon series, which is his kingdom. This king, Jesus, has a kingdom. And this is really zeroing in on that aspect that we talked about last week of Jesus is worthy of our affection and allegiance, Because the question is, so Jesus is a king, but is he a good king? What kind of king is he? And the kind of king he is, is put on display by the kind of kingdom that he brings. And so we're going to dive deeper into this idea of Jesus as worthy of our affection and allegiance. Last week, we talked about him being worthy principally because he brings all of God's promises to fruition, and most significantly, his promise to save from sin and death, right? But as believers who are very familiar with these things, we can begin to think that the extent to which Jesus is worthy and the extent to which the gospel is good news is just that he saves from sin, full stop, and then we just kind of wait for heaven to come. Right? We, we, we're saved, we're secure, we're in Christ, and we're waiting for his return. And in the meantime, we just try to be generally kind of good, and that's it. And we think that that is the fullness of the Christian life. But what I want us to see is that in bringing the kingdom of heaven near, Jesus accomplished so much more than merely saving from our sins. Although that is not anything mere by any standard, right? That is the capstone. But there's so much more to the fullness of the Christian life that he has brought to bear by bringing his kingdom. And so I want us to see that there's much more depth than we think of. I don't want us to miss the fullness of the work of Jesus by merely thinking of him as a means to an end or a means to heaven. Jesus is just my way to heaven. He is, but there's so much more to the kingdom that he brings. And I want, as we, as we look at those, that moreness, I want that to try to, my hope is, my prayer is that God would use that to stir our affections and to stir our allegiance towards Jesus, that that would cause us to go deeper into this idea that he is worthy of our affection and our allegiance. And so we're going to look at the moreness of the kingdom that he brings by kind of examining the other part of this summary sentence of the book of Matthew. I said, Matthew is about Jesus, the Messiah King, climactically fulfills the Old Testament. And then we're going to look at the latter half of that statement. By inaugurating the kingdom of heaven through his life, death, and resurrection, creating a new redeemed people of God, and fitting them to follow him in the global mission of God. That's three things we're going to look at, really, right? Looks like this. Three things. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of heaven. He creates a new redeemed people of God, and he fits us to follow him in the global mission of God. That's what we're going to be looking at. But before we do, I don't want to do what I did last week and forget to pray because we don't have any main scripture reading. So let me pray for us. Let's ask God's help as we go through these things and look at this theme from the book of Matthew. 
Father, we pray that you would do during this time what you delight to do, which is bring glory to your Son. That you would hold King Jesus high and that we would behold his kingdom and be blown away. That our hearts would be drawn to him. Our affections increased for him. Our allegiance to him strengthened. I pray that you would help us see the ramifications of the presence of the kingdom and the creation of a new people that are now fitted to follow you in the mission that you and the Son and the Spirit have had since the fall, which is to redeem. So I pray that you would help us now wrap our minds around these things. Would you bring to our remembrance what we've talked about and read already in the book of Matthew? And would you help me as I try to summarize these themes that we have seen? And would you work through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The first idea I want us to think about is this idea of Jesus inaugurating the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a major theme in Matthew. You might have noticed that as we've been reading through it. The kingdom of heaven, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, appears 31 times in Matthew. This is different, right, from king, which we looked at last week. Remember, we said king is not explicitly talked about in Matthew. It's, it's by implication, by the fact that Jesus is the Christ, or Jesus is the Son of Man, or Jesus is the Son of God. But here in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is explicit. 31 times for kingdom of heaven, another five times for the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom talked about three times. Kingdom itself talked about nine times in reference to this kingdom. It's 48 times total. By comparison, Christ only appears 16 times. Christ is no insignificant theme in Matthew. But the kingdom of heaven is a massive theme in Matthew. There's a problem though. And that problem is that the kingdom of heaven is not actually defined in Matthew. There's no verse that says, here's what it means when I talk about the kingdom of heaven. There's description, but not definition. There's a picture painted, but we're not given just a simple, like, here's what it means. The assumption by Matthew, I believe, is that his readers would understand what he means by the kingdom of heaven from the ways he uses it. The context he gives. Jesus helpfully speaks some parables about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. Saying the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he talks about different things that the kingdom of heaven is like. But we're not in Matthew 13 yet. And so I want to look just at Matthew 1 to 12. What have we seen that can help us understand what Matthew means by the kingdom of heaven? The first thing we need to know is that the kingdom of heaven refers to a person and not a place. Even though it says kingdom of heaven, this isn't necessarily shown in Matthew, but this is shown through a lot of intertestamental literature, literature that's between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that how Jews talked about the kingdom of God became talking about the kingdom of heaven as a way of not saying the name of God, as a way of being respectful to God. So when we say kingdom of heaven, Matthew's not talking about something else from Luke who uses kingdom of God. He's talking about the same thing. We're talking about the kingdom of a person, the kingdom of God. 
And we see some things about this kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God in Matthew. One of the things we see very clearly is that this is a kingdom that is proclaimed. This is a kingdom that is proclaimed. Matthew 4, 17, for example, from that time, Jesus began to preach or proclaim, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the same message we saw John the Baptist proclaim in the beginning of chapter 3, right? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is preaching this kingdom of heaven. Matthew 4.23, Matthew puts it this way, summarizing the ministry of Jesus. He says he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This is the same kind of summary that he uses summarizing the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 9 as well. Right? Jesus goes about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is proclaimed. It is news. It is something to be said. That's not all, though. We also see that the kingdom of heaven is something to be sought and something to be entered we see in Matthew 5:20 for example Jesus talking about the righteousness that's required to enter the kingdom I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven So not only is it something proclaimed and something preached but it's something to be entered into right we see that in Matthew 7:21 as well not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but who will the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven in the, begin, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about not being anxious. And what does he exhort his disciples to do? But to seek the kingdom of God. To seek first the kingdom of God. And again, Matthew, when he's using kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, is the same thing. Okay? He's talking about the same thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So, in one sense, it's something to be spoken about. In another sense, it's something to be pursued. We also see that the kingdom of heaven is better. There's an escalation over what's presently the reality that God's people are experiencing. There's something come that's better. We see this characterized by the nature of the kingdom of heaven at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus talks about the blessings that belong to those who are normally not considered blessed by society. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for example. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or at the end of those beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By sandwiching the beatitudes with blessing in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is trying to communicate that all of these things are in relation to the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the people of God. If there's a betterness, a blessedness that comes with the kingdom of heaven. There's also a comparison between the kingdom of now. For example, in Matthew 11, when Jesus is talking about John, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. The best this present kingdom has to offer, John the Baptist, yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And it's not because the kingdom of heaven is only composed of those who are really, really good and better than John the Baptist. But it's because they belong to the kingdom of heaven. There's a betterness and escalation that is happening. Or in Matthew 12, 28 and 29, 
when Jesus is talking about how he can cast out demons, right? And he says it's because he has bound the strong man, right? In the, in the second half of that verse, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, which is what Jesus is doing? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Implication being he is bound evil. The kingdom of heaven that is coming is having some impact on this present evil kingdom in that Satan is being bound, being disarmed. There is a betterness or an escalation. So it's something to be said, something to be proclaimed, something to be, to be sought or entered into or pursued, and it's something that's better than what we currently have. But still, what is it? Right? Like, notice in none of these is Matthew really said, like, this is the kingdom of heaven. These are all implications by how he describes it. I think, though, that we can have some further clarity by this idea that Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of heaven. Okay? The kingdom is inaugurated. Now, it's a, it's a fancy word, but we'll look at why I use that word based on what Jesus says and Matthew says about what Jesus says. Matthew 4.17, remember what Jesus is preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? At hand, or near, we might say. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 12.28, when he's talking about casting out these demons by the power of the Spirit, he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We have this, this nearness and this hereness of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is near and upon you. And this is what it means that Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of heaven. There's an already sense to the kingdom of heaven being among us. And in order to tell what that, sen- what, what that sense is, we have to ask, like, what are the effects of Jesus coming? What are the effects of Jesus' incarnation? What has changed with the advent of Jesus? His nearness... The nearness of the kingdom of heaven is manifest in what happens when Jesus comes on the scene. Remember Matthew 2. The wise men are coming and they ask Herod, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And the implication being, there's a king coming. But there's already one who's claiming to be king on the throne, right? There's already a king and a kingdom of Judah. And when the new king comes, when the true king comes, there's wars between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world, right? Herod responds to this news that the king is coming by slaughtering all the children of a certain age. We read about that in Matthew 2, this war between the kingdoms. With the king coming, the kingdom of heaven is brought near, and that nearness threatens worldly kingdoms. We see that in Matthew 2. In Matthew 3, we see John the Baptist describe what's happening when this king is coming. And there's judgment going to be coming, right? There's a winnowing fork that's going to, take, that, that's going to be uh, used on the people of God. There's an axe laid to the root of the tree. There's this threat that the current kingdoms and the current kings and the current leaders are going to be judged. We see in Matthew 8, when Jesus goes over to the far shores and encounters the demon-possessed Men in the territory of the Gentiles. What do they do? They come and fall down before him. They recognize his kingship. They recognize his kingdom. And he casts them out. He goes and plunders the enemy's household. Right? 
He goes to enemy territory and delivers captives because he brings the kingdom of heaven where God's people are truly set free. We see as well in Matthew 11, the restoring of brokenness and right order, right? When John asks, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? What does Jesus tell him? He says, tell John what you have seen, right? All of these manifestations of the kingdom of heaven in people being healed, in demons being cast out, in the dead being raised, in the good news proclaimed to the poor. The kingdom of heaven is upon you. All of these things have changed. And yet, we say Jesus inaugurates the kingdom because that captures that there is an already sense to the kingdom and a not yet sense to the kingdom. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, right? And what does he say? Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I thought the kingdom was already here. I thought the kingdom was upon you, he just says in Matthew 12. And yet he's teaching the disciples to pray to the Father that the kingdom of heaven would come. There's some aspect in which the kingdom of heaven is not yet arrived. The fullness is not yet here, it is yet to come. The consummation of the kingdom is yet to come. I think we can understand it a little bit like the sense of the dawn. I think dawn, the dawning of the kingdom of heaven is a good way to think about it. If you think about the dawn, you think about the sunrise. At what point is the sun risen? Right? We would say technically it's probably when it's beyond the horizon and you can see the whole thing, right? But you can see the sun rising much before that, can't you? You can see the rays shining out and the light banishing the darkness long before the sun crests the horizon. And then even as it is still cresting the horizon, it's still not yet fully risen. That's what's happening with the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is being brought near and beginning to dawn. And you're seeing the rays shoot out and banish the darkness. And yet it hasn't crested the horizon yet. There's still more to come. There's still a fullness to be had. I think this helps us understand what is the kingdom of heaven because it's tied to an event in history, namely the coming of the king. Right? The kingdom of heaven is intricately tied to the king, to the son, to Jesus Christ. Therefore, I would summarize the kingdom of heaven this way. I would say the kingdom of heaven is God's saving reign through his son, Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is God's saving reign through his son, Jesus. That's a tentative definition because we've still got more to go with Matthew. But I think that's what we see so far. Is that through Jesus, through the presence of the life of the king, the Messiah, the one who is to come. Through his presence in life, death, and resurrection, the kingdom of heaven is brought near. The kingdom of heaven begins to dawn. The rays of heavenly light shine through and banish darkness. The kingdom of heaven is near is an announcement that God's saving reign is here. Because his king is here. It's a saving reign. It's a reign to redeem his people. It's an announcement that God is bringing all of his saving promises to fruition as he establishes his king, his son, Jesus. Because this is true, that the kingdom of heaven is God's saving reign through his son, Jesus. I think another way of thinking of what the kingdom of heaven is then, what does it mean to be in the kingdom of heaven? 
It means to experience the blessing of the saving reign of the Son of God. The kingdom of heaven is the blessed life under God's rule. This is what he's doing when he climactically fulfills the entirety of the Old Testament. Bringing the promises that God made to his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bring you into the pleasant land and bless you. The fact that the kingdom of heaven is God's saving reign through his son Jesus implies that there are people within that kingdom to be reigned over, right? To experience that reign, to experience the goodness of that reign. The fact that we are called to enter the kingdom of heaven implies that there is a people involved with this kingdom. So it's not a geopolitical kingdom like we have, if you go 30 miles that way, you will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? And there's people living over there who are living in the kingdom of heaven. It's not like that. But there is a sense in which there's a presence to the kingdom of heaven and there's a people within that kingdom. The people are in that kingdom because when Jesus comes as king, he inaugurates the kingdom of heaven. And that inauguration creates a new redeemed people of God. This is the second thing we see about this aspect of kingdom. That there is a new redeemed people of God created. Notice I said a new redeemed people of God. And that implies that there's something that necessitated a newness. In order to understand what's happening with the kingdom of heaven and the people of God in Matthew, you have to understand the history of the people of God in the Old Testament. We see that history, first of all, in Adam, which I'm not going to give us a reference to quote, but if you wanted to go back and read that history in Genesis 1 and 2, you have this original creation design that God's blessings would flow to creation through his son, Adam. He created Adam and Eve in his image and told them together to go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion. The goal of that was spreading God's divine blessing to all of creation. God intended from the beginning that his blessings would flow to creation through his son. We know from the story of Adam that he chose rebellion instead, right? There was a failure of king and kingdom. There was a failure of Adam to be God's royal son who brought his blessings to creation. And because of that, the kingdom fell apart. And the people within the kingdom rebelled. There was a kingdom failure. God promises that he's going to repair this damage though. He gives a promise of offspring in Genesis 3.15. That one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And he begins fulfilling that promise even as early as Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is the promise to Abraham. Here in Genesis 12 he hasn't yet been renamed. He's still Abram. But this is what God says to him. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God makes this promise to Abraham, his chosen son out of all the nations of the earth, that he will create him into a nation who God will later call his son, 
And that through that nation, through that son, will flow his blessings to all the nations. His blessings to all creation. Right? God is still on the same plan. I will take a son, and through him will I bless the nations. He's going to do it now through Abraham and through a royal nation. We know from the history of Israel that Israel failed to fulfill that calling. That Israel, as God's son, proved to be a rebellious son. Israel proved to be filled with rebellious people who turned away from God. And so there was a failure, again, of king and kingdom. This failure climaxed in exile from the land at the end of the Old Testament. And then as God mercifully brought his people back, there was this anticlimactic sense of what now? And there was a waiting period. A waiting for God to show what the next step in his plan was. What he was going to do to rescue and redeem this people. And then we come to the gospel of Matthew and we see that God's people Israel are still full of rebellious sons. We see, for example, in Matthew 2.15, that after Herod pushes out this king into Egypt, that God applies this language and says, out of Egypt I have called my son. And the implication is that Israel itself has become Egypt. And now God's true son is having to flee to Egypt, actually, for protection from the people that ought to welcome him and rejoice. We see in Matthew 8, this idea of judgment on the sons of Israel, those who claim to be the children of Israel, that will actually be the sons of the kingdom cast into outer darkness. We see in Matthew 11 to 12, this, this, escalating, uh, this escalating opposition to the king and his kingdom, right? We see that Jesus pronounced woes on the unrepentant cities, saying, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah are better than you. Tyre, Tyre was better than you. Nineveh was better than you. You refuse to repent, even though you see the greatness of the king and his kingdom. There's a judgment against these cities and against their leaders in Matthew 12. We see Jesus start to strongly rebuke the leaders who continue to be rebellious and refuse to Fulfill their calling to be God's children who are going to bring this blessing to the nations. And so the question, even at the beginning of Matthew, is how is God going to fulfill this promise? That one day he will make a nation out of Abraham. And that one day his offspring would bring blessing to the nations. This points to the need for a new people of God. And Matthew establishes that this need is being fulfilled in Jesus. Think about how the book of Matthew starts again. We have chapter 1, verse 1, and we talked about a few pieces of it last time, right? We talked about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus the son of David, the royal king, but we didn't really talk about Jesus the son of Abraham. This is interesting because God promised that one day he will bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham. And here we have Matthew at the very beginning of his gospel highlighting descent from Abraham. Highlighting that there is a son of Abraham yet who we may hope that will fulfill this promise. And we see as Matthew continues to tell the story of Jesus that this son of Abraham is actually not a rebellious son. But this son of Abraham is actually one who's going to fulfill this promise. 
Then we see in Matthew 2, when this Old Testament quote from Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son, is applied to Jesus. Which is really fascinating because in the Old Testament, this was applied to Israel. What this establishes for us is that Jesus now is this true son. This son who is going to fulfill the promises that God's son Israel were meant to fulfill. Which is to follow him, to be his kingdom, and to bring those blessings to the nations. We see Jesus portrayed as a new son of Abraham, a true son of Abraham. A true son of God and therefore a true Israel. And we see this theme continued, right? As baptism, God speaks from heaven and declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What happens after that? Jesus is led into the wilderness by the spirit. And what, is he, what happens to him? He is tested, tempted by the devil. Just like Israel was, just like God's people, God's son in the Old Testament was led into the wilderness and tempted. Tempted, will you look to yourself or will you look to God for what you need to eat? Will you test God or will you trust him? And Jesus, as the true son of God, fulfills what Israel was called to do by trusting God, right? He tells Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, which is the very reason God tells his people. He led them into wilderness in the first place so that they might learn that. And here is the true son succeeding where Israel failed. And as this true son, then he provides the genesis, the roots, the seed, if you will, for this new people of God then. So it's not just one people because the intent of God was always to create a nation of people who is going to fulfill this. Starting with his son Jesus as the firstborn of many brothers, Jesus now himself as the true Israel creates a new redeemed people of God. This people is no longer coming from genealogical descent, right? John makes that point in rebuking Israel in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Doesn't matter that you can trace your lineage to Abraham. Do not presume to say that, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, which he does through Jesus. Then Jesus, we saw even as we closed Matthew 12, that Jesus himself is creating this new family of God, this new group of children of Abraham, true children of Abraham. Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This new people of God is now defined by those who do the will of the father. They're defined by their connection to Jesus not by their genealogical descent. We see that this is Jews and Gentiles, therefore. When Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion, what what does he say? He says in Matthew 8, 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And it's in verse 12 that he says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into darkness. 
clearly indicating he's talking about Gentiles coming and reclining at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, being incorporated into the people of God. It's not Jew and only, but also Gentile, but it's also not merely the righteous, but sinners called by grace, right? Jesus makes that point very clearly. It is not the righteous I came to call, but sinners. This is who he makes his new kingdom out of. Jesus is this true son through which God's blessings flow to all peoples. And part of that blessing is his creating this new kingdom, this new people of God, composed of Jew and Gentile alike, sinners saved by grace. The citizens of the kingdom of heaven are sinners. And this is not the best stock to create a new kingdom out of, right? Like, this is not how I would choose to proceed if I was trying to fix what Israel had broken. I probably would not look to the weak and the poor and the needy and those who are far from God. But this is what God does. Because God's ways are not our ways. His wisdom is beyond our wisdom. And so in his son Jesus, he comes to redeem sinners and create them into a new people of God. And this is why it's so important for us to recognize the third piece to this. Is that he fits us for participation in this kingdom. He fits us to follow him in the global mission of God. He fits this new people. He makes them fitting for this kingdom. He calls this new people to follow him. Notice how he does it as he calls to follow him. There's a pattern that we see in the gospel of Matthew already. It's that Jesus proclaims and demonstrates the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And then he calls people to follow him in light of that good news. Look at 4, 17 to 19, for example. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's proclaiming this good news of the nearness of the kingdom. Then what does he do? While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He's proclaiming good news and saying, Follow me. And then what does he do in Matthew 9? Same thing. He's talking to this paralytic and he tells him, son, your sins are forgiven. And, the, and the, those leaders around him are like, how can he forgive sins? And then he says this, that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then turns to the paralytic and he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he does. And then what does Jesus do right after that? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. We see this all over Matthew that Jesus is proclaiming this good news of the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. And that an implication of that is a call to follow him. But it's a pattern where grace precedes this call to obedience. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts, blessed are. Why? Because God is gracious. And then what does he say? Do this. Have this exceeding righteousness. Have this righteousness that manifests the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, and then go and do. Grace precedes obedience in the kingdom of heaven. And this is how Jesus can not only call, but fit people 
as sinners to follow him. We see Jesus doing this by giving this grace-based charter to the people of God in the Sermon on the Mount. There's something happening here as the lead up to the sermon. Jesus is showing himself to be the true Israel coming through the wilderness faithful to Yahweh. And then he comes up to God's people and leads them up onto this mountain and reflects on the Ten Commandments, giving them a new law, if you will, although it's an old law. It's not different from the law. It's fulfilling the law. Jesus is acting as a new Moses, giving a new charter to God's people. The, king, the, the Sermon on the Mount, this directions for God's people of what life in the kingdom looks like. And it's a grace-based charter because it begins with blessed are. It begins with God's declaration of blessing on his people, all who would come to him. And then flowing out of that, says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's based, though, on grace. And the flowing from that grace is obedience. Jesus fits his new people by giving them this charter that's based on grace. And he fits his new people by showing and demonstrating that he and his power are sufficient even though their faith is little. I love Matthew eight twenty six and 27 and the broader story, right? You know the story. God's people, these disciples are traveling across the Sea of Galilee in a boat and a storm comes upon them and it's raging. And these are experienced fishermen and sailors. They know how to handle a storm at sea, but even they're scared. They're terrified and they think they're going to die and they wake Jesus up and say, save us, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? I'm struck by this phrase, O you of little faith. What differentiates these disciples, who are clearly participating in the kingdom, from those Pharisees who stand outside and say, we refuse to believe? It's the nearness of Jesus to them, and it's his presence with them. It's his ability to save them, to help them. This is how Jesus helps his disciples. The difference that is made is that he is with them. This is how he fits his people. We'll see more of this as we go through Matthew, and we'll see the culmination of this in the Great Commission when Jesus gives this mission to his disciples. And what does he say? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus fits his people by being with them and by participating with them in the mission. Matthew 11, 1, right? He commissions his disciples out on a mission. And then right after that, it says Jesus had finished giving these instructions. He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. He goes on and does what he told them to do, what he sent them to do. He goes and does it with them. And so fits them for participation. It's participation in a mission of God. Jesus fits his new people for mission. He shows the scattering of Israel. He looks out and just before the Matthew 9, 37, he, he says they're like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. And he turns to his disciples and says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then what does he do? He sends out his 12 disciples. He has them be the fulfillment of their own prayer for laborers in the harvest because Jesus is creating a new people of God and fitting them to follow him in his mission. 
He's not just merely bringing a kingdom that offers you rest and me rest and forgiveness, but he is fitting us to participate in that kingdom coming. This is the why we see redemptive righteousness as such a strong theme in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is calling for the kind of righteousness that produces the effects of the kingdom. And he's enabling us to do it because of the grace he has given. And so he sends his disciples out on the mission and says to them, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we pointed out as we went through, you may remember, notice the simplicity of the mission. What Jesus calls his disciples to do is go and say what he said. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and go and live out the sermon on the mount, right? Not take anything with them, but look to their father who knows what they need. Seek first his kingdom. He calls them to go with wisdom, knowing that they go as sheep in the midst of wolves, but he sends them not as those who are helpless. They are harassed just like the Jews, but they are not helpless because their king goes with them. And that's true for me and you as well. Together then with Jesus, this new people of God who are fit to follow him, by him, then fulfill this hope of Abraham. That as this new people of God, the blessings of God, the presence of his kingdom would flow out into the world. That's what's happening as Jesus is establishing his new people. And that's still happening with you and I today. I want us to look at this one more time so we can kind of get it in our minds. All these three pieces fitting together, forming the story that Matthew is telling about King Jesus, which is that Jesus, the Messiah King, climactically fulfills the Old Testament by inaugurating the kingdom of heaven through his life, death, and resurrection, creating a new redeemed people of God and fitting them to follow him in the global mission of God. The kingdom of heaven, again, is God's saving reign through his son, King Jesus. And what this means for you and I then, what this means, because this kingdom of heaven is God's saving reign through his son, King Jesus, and Jesus has brought this kingdom near. This means that the kingdom of heaven itself is a total claim of divine sovereignty over each and every one of us. Jesus saves because Jesus reigns. And so the good news that Jesus saves is also the good news that Jesus reigns. And that means that there is a claim over your life, over my life. It's good news for those who are weak and broken. For the meek who will inherit the earth, right? It's good news for repentant sinners who recognize their need and come to Jesus. The kingdom of heaven, though, is bad news for self-righteous rebels, and we've already seen that in the Pharisees. This makes a total claim of divine sovereignty over every individual, you and I, and the fact that the kingdom of heaven has now been brought near in Jesus demands then a response from us. We talked about this in Matthew 12. There is no neutrality in the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus is bringing with him the kingdom of heaven as a Completely new, restored cosmic order, if you will. The restoration of Genesis one thirty one. God looked out and saw everything and it was very good. Because Jesus is bringing this saving reign of his, under his Father, to us, there is no neutrality. There is no 
opportunity to avoid responding to this. You must respond. I must respond. This is what Jesus said in 1230, Matthew 1230, right? When he said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. The enemies of the kingdom will be scattered by the coming of the king. Like we talked about in Sunday school this morning. That God will not leave our sins and idolatry unpunished. But the king comes and creates this new people. And we can respond. Because this is a kingdom of grace. To be a part of this kingdom of heaven is a privilege given to us by the grace of God. It is not something that you and I can ever achieve and earn on our own. This is why it's good news that it demands a response. It's like Moses setting before the people of Israel, I've set before you today life and death, choose life that you may live. Right? That's the kingdom of heaven in a nutshell. That's what Jesus is telling us, choose life that you may live, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We become the people of God and enter into the kingdom of heaven by listening to and doing the Father's will, which is to listen to his Son who calls us to come. To come to his Son, Jesus, take his yoke upon us and rest in him. To place all of our trust and hope in Jesus. And the promise of the kingdom is that all who come will be welcomed. That this new family that Jesus is creating, all who come, are welcome. Life in the kingdom of heaven, friends, is the only path to true joy and blessing. Come and listen to Jesus. That's what he's calling us to do. I want to end with the words of the song, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. But I like the poem version well, and I think it fits well with what the kingdom of heaven calls us to, which is this, let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and mangled by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners Jesus came to call. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you and praise you that in Jesus the Son, your kingdom has begun to dawn and that the rays of your kingdom are already pushing back the darkness, even the darkness in our own hearts and opening our eyes to behold the wonder and the beauty. Father, you want us rightly to delight in the Son. And Jesus, you are rightly worthy of our affection and our adoration and our allegiance, all that we have, all that we could give. You call us to come not bringing what we have as anything that could merit, but you call us to come because you delight to rescue sinners. Spirit, we praise you as the one that even opens our eyes and our hearts to these realities. The one that draws us to Jesus. And so, triune God, we ask your help 
We ask your help to keep these realities of the presence of the kingdom of heaven, of God's saving reign through his son Jesus, fresh in our minds and in our hearts day by day so that we may live rightly as citizens of the kingdom and that we may rest in the fitness that you have provided and that we may follow you on this mission. Would you help us continue to see these things as we pursue more of Christ in the book of Matthew after the new year? And would you help us now revel and delight in these things as we come to your table? We pray in the name of the triune God. Amen.